Welcome to Chinwag. Hey, God, the guitar resonated when I did that. Got a guitar down <laughs> at the bottom here. If I go, hello, the guitar resonates because it's a resonator. Welcome. You to, can almost hear the crowd. You can almost hear the crowd, the roar of the crowd, the smell of the grease paint. Um, welcome to the Chinwag with me, your ever genial host, Mike Laverick. Um, with me today, I'm joined by a chap called Duncan James, who, um, how did this sort of Chinwag come about? Um, I came across... A kind of internal circulator, uh, circulator, circular, circular uh, saying, "Hey, we've had this SB contest, and this guy's won it, and let everybody just like go mental about this." So I had a look at it and go, "I recognise that guy," <laughs> and it turned out that I'd uh, I'd met Duncan. I've met you a couple of times at, at various V mugs. I forget which ones, and of course I follow you on Twitter. So, uh, and then it just sort of happened. I saw your name on Twitter. I went. Chin whack with this guy. Um, but um, anyway, I'm rambling on too much. Duncan, introduce yourself. Yep, okay. Tell us about this SMB contest and why it is that you, you won it. Okay, uh, yeah, so I'm Duncan James. I work for a law firm based in Leeds, which is in the UK. I'm a bit of a jack of all trades, to be honest, uh, especially interested in virtualization and probably more so at the minute, more end user computing. Um, so I think I've joked with you a few times, Mike, that I've been doing virtualization for 15 years. Mm. Well, it's true to some extent, but it's actually virtual musical instruments that I've been using for 15 years. So, <laughs> virtual um, yeah, so there was no garage band back then. Um, back then it was more Fruity Loops and Cubase. All right. I uh, remember Cubase, actually. I remember that oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's still going strong. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what was this, uh, what was this SMB contest that you, that you won? Yeah, it was just by chance that I, I saw it, to be honest, on the VMware SMB blog. Mm. Um, it was just 200 words of how you could use a VMware project in your business. And I had a good think about it. And I thought, well, everyone's going to go for maybe Vue or vSphere. So I thought, let's think outside the box. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, being working at a law firm, um, People send documents all over the place all the time. And I saw that Project Octopus was out at the time. It's a really good name, Octopus. They should have kept it. Yeah, because um, it's now Horizon Data. Horizon Data. Yeah. I mean, it's all built into Workspace. Um, and if you actually, when you're actually looking up, looking at the VM loading up, you can still see this Octopus plastered all over the VM still. All right, okay. So either that's laziness or it's just a heritage to, the, to a really good name. Right. <laughs> So it was all about a usage case for you. I mean, in case people don't know, it's kind of, I hate, hate it when people do this. It's Dropbox for the enterprise. So like everything is a retail thing and then add for the enterprise to the internet. It's like Pandora yeah. for the enterprise. It's, it's, it's kind of, how, how do you deal with the, the you know, the um, corporate Dropbox problem, if you like? Mm. Um, I'm often pondering what everybody else is doing. Um, I've got Dropbox, no idea what people probably. do. <laughs> using Dropbox yeah. and exposing themselves to all sorts of vulnerabilities and not even aware that it's happening. Yeah. So my yeah, question, that's it. Uh, there's a video of you talking about this uh, this uh, prize, which is very slickly delivered. What I want to know is how many times did you have to go through that video before you managed to get the pitch? Exactly. Which, which one was it? The, the one you watched recently? Yeah. Um. Not too many times. <laughs> oh, he's keeping his... 
He's keeping, his video, secrets. Yeah, he's keeping his video and acting abilities under wraps. So, I mean, I guess that kind of leads us very well to our first question. As people know, there's a little bit of email exchange between me and the, the Chinwagi and the Chinwagger. That's the way to put it. And I've got like a little bulleted list of, of those topics. Uh, but it does lead on very nicely to talk about workspace. And we were, I was saying offline, um, before I joined VMware, I was working with the previous incarnation of it, which was called Horizon Application Manager or HAM or VHAM. I like the idea of virtual ham, virtual meat. But anyway, um, virtual sandwiches. Um, but it's it, it's changed its name. Um, at the time, I think it was just two virtual appliances, the connector and the kind of service front end. But when I yeah. last when I looked at the new workspace iteration, it's now like three or four virtual appliances. It's actually it's actually now now five. Was it five? Um, and it comes as a V app as well, yeah, so, so you can need V Center to deploy it first of all. So I mean, this I I know what the features are because I I sort of read the announcements. But I've not touched the thing in anger because where I am is in the the cloud um, side of the business, not in the EUC side of the business. So if I'm going to do any EUC work, I have to kind of cleverly slip it in amongst cloud work. So the last time I did anything that was EUC related was using vShield Edge Gateway as the load balancer and as the entry point into Vue rather than using, you know, I don't know, F5, big IP, which is probably what I did for the book. But um, tell us about your experiences of using Horizon Application Manager, as, you know, the setup, things that work for yep. you, gotchas. Just tell us about your experiences, really. Yeah, so um, you deploy it just as you would do uh, any other kind of virtual appliance, just like vCenter Server or uh, vCenter Ops. Mm -hmm. um, so it's five VMs. Um, the initial VM is called the configurator, and when you power that on, the first thing it does is a, sort of a series of checks. So you, you've hopefully by this stage you've already put in the IP addresses for the other um, virtual machines, um, so the configurator, the data, and the service. Um, it does a DNS and a reverse DNS checkup. Uh, it talks to vCenter. It checks some SMTP settings and does a little bit of an initial certificate check. Mm. Um, it then does a few snapshots of itself, and it continues on its way in its little factory until it's finished doing its initial config. And hopefully, by the end of that, there's a nice big kind of we're ready to go um, message. And then you can go onto a web browser and do some more config, where perhaps you're going to do an LDAP bind, import some users from AD, uh, give those users access to services like Horizon Data. Um, so not too much time, to be honest, to get up and going. Um, if it does go horribly wrong, you don't get those IPs in, then it pretty much tells you there's a big error. You need to go and talk to VMware support. Do you need um, IP pools set up to do the IP configuration? Yeah, you, you do indeed. That's a bit of a top tip. Um, there's a lot of blog uh, entries out there about what you actually need to put in. Um, so I, I can't remember the guys. I think it's Jonathan Frappier, I think it is. And he's got basically a blog post on what IP settings to put in, that kind of thing. I guess whatever um, IP you put in, whatever IP, if it's going to speak to Virtual Center, it's got to be on your management network. But it's also yeah. got to be, part of it has got to be accessible to the end users. And your end users never meet your management network. So I guess that's yeah. where things get 
interesting from a patching perspective which port groups you put each of the different yeah. nodes on. So, did you find that straightforward, or was it a little bit tricky? Um, well, to be honest, I was on the beta for Octopus, and then I was also on the beta for um, Horizon Workspace. So, between the beta and the GA, they didn't actually you didn't actually need to put IP pools in. So that kind of came as a shock when. I put the real version on. It was like, well, oh, this isn't working now, but it was working on that version. So what have I done differently? Because I've documented everything. And I can guess that's the most important thing. Get everything documented and at least you can work your way through it and see perhaps where you've gone wrong. I think the, the funny thing about IP pools um, is some of the virtual appliances don't require them and some of the virtual appliances do. And I don't know whether internally there's ever been a policy or a standard to say whether you should or should not use IP pools because outside of virtual appliances, they're not really used that much in my experience in production environments. You could see the advantage obviously with virtual appliances because you want to IP them, bring them up, they all speak to each other. Um, I remember on the beta for vSphere replication, um, back when it was called horse-based replication, HBR, the, um, the beta had the IP pools requirement in it. And a lot of us on the beta program were like, oh, why do we have to use this? We don't like this. Um, and uh, somebody said to me at, at VMware, well, sometimes it just happens by accident because the developer who built the appliance, when they export it through uh, Studio, if they've used IP pools, that just gets captured as part of the appliance. And they might not okay. even think or of the consequences of that for, whereas if the developer hasn't used IP pools and then they export that to through Studio, then they're not included. But I think I once discovered that you can actually go through one of those wizards, bung in a bogus IP address, and then before you power on the appliance, actually just remove the IP pool requirement and it will power up. And if it does that, then what it will do is do a DHCP or wait until you give it a static IP address. But I'm not sure whether that is a consistent experience across all the various appliances that we have. but. Perhaps a bit dangerous for me to say this, but I sometimes think it's an accident whether the IP pools requirement is there or not, you know. It's like an evolution of a, a VM, you know, or a VApp, who knows? Yeah, it's... yeah, I guess, I mean, I think what I think is interesting about IP pools, I didn't, didn't intend this to be a discussion about IP pools, but I still learned that one, is when you look at something like vCloud Director, you can't configure the thing without making IP pools, and VMs come up, they get a static IP address from a static pool, so it's like DHCP, but it's static rather than you know just being leased down. So it's kind of weird in some parts of the architecture, vCloud Director, IP pools is kind of mandatory, but in vSphere, it's a kind of take it or leave it kind of feature. You, nobody says, you know, your your life is somehow not complete if you don't have IP pools in vSphere. It's it's not something that people tend to think about too much. But you mentioned these, there's five different roles. Could you teach Mike Laverick? What, what are those different roles there for so there's the configurator what are the other yeah so um so the configurator is pretty much almost like a dumb vm really it's just it's just there to be actually dishing out the roles and uh making sure they can all talk to each other and that sort of thing um the data one's obviously the files okay um so we've got service i think Everyone connects to the service one, is that right? Yeah, and then the, is the connector the one that goes to ADs? Oh, no, sorry. Everyone, sorry, no, everyone actually connects to the connector one. And then it's, yeah, I always got those yeah. the other way around when it was yeah. Horizon yeah. Application Manager. All right, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm missing one. What am I missing? 
Answers on a postcard. Answers on a postcard. <laughs> so, for my money, there's sort of three main things that you can do with this, and maybe I'm wrong on it. There's the the SAML based applications, the things that like Salesforce that people can register for. You can register thin apps with that UI. I mean, I use that every day internally. I log in yeah. Horizon, I select the apps I want to use. Then there's the, the data component, and then there's the ability to advertise a virtual desktop in Workspace. Is that right? There's three main things you can offer up from the service, or is there a fourth or fifth that I'm missing? Um, the best way of describing it is is like a, a telephone switchboard, to be honest, right. um, for Workspace, because um, it gives you access to either web apps, whether um, they're external, you've got your thin apps, uh, and then data stuff as well. And it, it tends to be a kind of rule-based system so that if you're inside the corporate LAN, it's going to give you more stuff. And if you're outside the corporate LAN, it's going to give you less, that sort of thing. There's the, you know, the view desktops as well. So it's kind of like your one-stop shop uh, for accessing um, services and data, to be honest. So, I mean, on the kind of application side of things, do you have many apps registered for SAML and OAuth? This is the, the, the protocol that allows you to authenticate without passing on your AD credentials, but automatically enrolling you in Google Apps or automatically enrolling you in Salesforce. Do you have many yeah, apps set up? Um, I mean, it's, ours is still in testing, to be honest. Um, but the benefit for it is when someone leaves the firm. So there's that many different web apps now that people get subscribed to. You really want them all shutting down when someone leaves, not trying to scrabble through a, a spreadsheet or something that someone might have created. Um, it's kind of almost it's out of control. As soon as you've subscribed to someone to something external, you know, it's difficult to, to manage. Plus, plus maybe you don't maybe, want to manage it. Plus you may be paying for that service as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. So there's like a chargeback as well. So it's, it's nice to actually have a I'm not going to say that single pane of glass word. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it jokingly. Actually, there was somebody on the podcast the other day with John that, that said single pane of glass at least three or four times, and I was like this. I had my fist in my mouth trying not to say anything because unless you warn somebody about it up front, if they then say single pane of glass and I go... Then, then they're going to get a bit upset. So you do have to sort of warn people up front. To be honest, I did plan to get that in this uh, chinwag, so I'm glad I got it in there. <laughs> well, actually, what what I should have is a prize for the most kind of subtle way that's the term single pane. Yeah, 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 like, that'd be I'm good. I'm looking out my window, and you could say, it's a single pane of glass. <laughs> bum, bum. So um, I was going to... Maybe you could win a competition on that. Sure. I think one thing I liked about um, Horizon Application Manager when it was that iteration was I was getting into ThinApp and just at that point of finishing up the book, um, ThinApp Factory had come out, uh, which builds ThinApps for you on demand. But somebody had put together a JSON RSS feed that would pull down like 150 of the most popular free apps and then build off all those ThinApps for you. But you could actually rig... ThinApp Factory to Horizon. So once all the applications have been built by ThinApp Factory, they start to appear in your inventory in oh, Horizon, and you just go uh, add that one to this group and so on. And it it showed like the real power of being able to to just automatically build applications because 
I think prior to something like ThinApp Factory, most people who are building, say, thin apps or any virtualized application, you have your clean machine, you take a snapshot of it, you install your software, you run the scanner, yada, yada. I'm having to do that for every single blasted application in the enterprise. Even if you cut down the 1,000 apps that you think you have to the 50 apps that really get used in the environment, as to all the other 950 that are you know, barely use. Even that is a pain in the rear. And, you know, if you're trying to keep a particular piece of software that frequently updates, once you've built the thing, it's already out of date because some buggers released update yeah, yeah. 26 of whatever the software is, if you get the hint, without mentioning, <laughs> without mentioning Java. <gasps> oh, God, every week there's a bloody Java security update that I see pop-ups for. But anyway less about that are you using any of the thin app side of things for it the more kind of internally hosted apps uh to be honest it's all just in the lab to be honest mm. uh, and now the uh now the vexpert licenses have come through today fantastic yeah uh you can crack on with that now so um, what I'm, i guess maybe i should have asked a more straightforward question which is out of those three things desktops apps internal external and uh, um, the data Mm. which is the one you want out of those three do you want all of them or do you just want one of them yeah the, the primary use is the data to be honest mm. um, because a law firm has got just so many documents that are trying to get out um, it's it's the bread and butter to be honest so so did you look at any other alternatives to uh, horizon data and what made you choose horizon data in the end yeah, so I mean, there's lots of different versions. Every every week, there's a different someone trying to sell the same there sort of thing. It's like a <laughs> word Dropbox for the enterprise. <sighs> yeah. So what 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 made you go the VMware route rather than somewhere else? What put you off? Or... Uh, so perhaps it's the competition. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think I think I've learned quite a bit about the products over the last uh, six months or so. Mm. Um, there's definitely some improvements I'd like to see on there. Um, so they can sort of catch up with other competitors. Um, specifically, there's um, an Outlook plugin, which should be really good for us because um, emails are de facto standard for sharing documents for lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, my user base, they're always going to want to send large PDFs out. No matter what I tell them, they're going to try and whack on a 100, 100 meg PDF or something like that because it's got to go out. Um, there's a lot of pressure. So what I really want an Outlook plugin to do is to analyze the attachment and say, whoa, 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 that's too big. How about I drop it into Horizon Data and I replace it with a hyperlink so the person on the other end can then download it. And it's kind of seamless and it's it's automated. So um, I'm hoping that will be in the next release. Because mm. I, I mean, we both do this. There are some things that I can email to somebody because they're small enough and it's just a one-off. There are some files that I've got which are quite big, and every other week somebody's asking. Usually, a presentation that I've done the VMUG. Can I see your PowerPoint? Mm. So I've ended up on Dropbox because it's you know anybody's on it. Um, mm. To I've opened up a Dropbox folder with VMUG leaders and with all the presentations, even the ones I haven't done at a VMUG, and I just keep on inviting them to that folder. So that's the way I kind of handle it. But I guess we're asking our users to do a lot to. To constantly think, do I need to send this? Is it? Am I always going to be sending this? Can I not yeah, have this yeah. on, a, on a shared location where I could just point into the link? So maybe, like you were saying, the plugin to, you know, they uh, tend to be unique documents. To be honest, um, associated with a particular case, I imagine. Yeah, and it changes all the time. There might be you know ten different versions in a day. Mm-hmm. 
And I get, I mean, as I understand it, you can back the store for uh, Horizon Data with what? A virtual disk or an RDM that points to a LUN that is on your SAN yeah. array? Or is it we, we just a- use. We just use uh, yeah BMDKs at the minute. Um, we're we're not that big for using anything bigger to be honest. Uh, and a lot of the times it's just to get stuff out. Um, so it fits that bill to be honest. Mm. I mean, I'm tempted to run it internally, having a an internal version of it because I've got um, an old two terabyte NAS on my network which I could make into a sort of Dropbox style location, but have it done internally and use that as a kind of the de facto place where I put all my stuff. I mean, it's it's mounted in, in Finder and I can share things that way, but what I like is the sort of synchronization that you get with these sorts of file utilities. So that's a question. I don't know, does Horizon Data do that kind of sync to my local machine? Yeah, so there's, there's a... Connected? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a plugin which sits on your, your Mac or Windows device and mm. It's it's literally like just like Dropbox really. Um, it monitors the share and um, it syncs it all up. Yeah, I mean I've got that on my Mac for our internal one. The only thing that sort of puts me off using it internally is ours is backed by an RSA. So every time I power on my Mac, I've got to uh, bring up the RS, RSA uh, ID, type in my mm. username and RSID in it, and then it works for the time mm. my Mac is up. The the problem is is that. Often the people I'm wanting to share with is it's external people, and mm. I just want to be at the Dropbox. Seems to be pretty much the uniform for for retail people, you know. Mm. So if you're sharing with external people, I must admit you must be able with uh, Horizon Data to share with people who aren't trusted, who aren't part of your. Yeah, you can have third party people. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, maybe I should should do that, but not. I mean, I think the difference for me is a lot of what I'm sharing is my own presentations they're not vmware corporate decks where i might want mm. to be a bit more cautious about them getting out on the wild a lot of the stuff is just what i've written myself anyway i should stop talking about my use of dropbox i'm hardly doing a good job of advertising the power of horizon data so um the other thing that sort of came up in our like email exchange was your use of left hand vsa in production now when i saw that i was like whoa very interested mainly because i've used the left hand vsa which is now the the uh, thrillingly entitled hp six it was store virtual store virtual doesn't it have a product number six thousand or something like that um i, I can't i can't remember yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's good old left hand to me it's a snappy <laughs> little name there hp six four six five five one three six one b you know Give it a product number and then everybody goes to sleep. Because I first started using that VSA for the first SRM book, I had some dumb, stupid storage with the left-hand VSA, two of them running in London and Reading, later New York and New Jersey. I went all American and Atlanticized in the second edition. And without that VSA, I would not have written the first SRM book because I had no storage to do replication and there was no vSphere application back there either so I would have been kind of hassled but I've always wondered whether people actually used it in prod the real world <laughs> and um, I must admit I've I was imp- I was how to say surprised impressed with its performance despite the fact that it's a virtual storage appliance it's a VSA and it was probably one of the first 
of its type, apart from just running Linux and then running OpenFiler in Linux. It was the yeah. first kind of appliance from a recognized storage vendor you could download, which looked and felt like the real physical storage, the real deal, and nobody would know that it was actually a virtual appliance in most cases. But um, anyway, I'm yakking on. Um, what made you choose a virtual storage appliance and were you not worried about performance not being so good because it's a virtual appliance? Yeah, so there's a bit of history to this. Um, so I should maybe explain from the start and then it perhaps will make a bit more sense. sense. Okay. Um, so the firm I work for um, has never previously had shared storage in the form of a SAN. And when you look at the ticket price for a SAN, the annual support, training, the investment for any SMB is, is quite significant. So, back in the day, when <laughs> I'm not that old really, um, <laughs> back in the day though, when I was uh, starting out with server virtualization, and when this I was, was back a, in the days when of, I was a lad, back in the when day. I was a lad, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was ESXi 3.5, and I was following Simon Seagrave's TechEd site, starting off with a ML115 G5. Um, so I got as far as putting uh, ESXi on a USB stick, booting it up, uh, showing it off to my colleagues, who were rather disappointed um, because they were just staring back at a yellow screen. <laughs> uh, so they didn't really get it at that stage. Uh, anyway, so I used this lab box to play around, creating some VMs, quickly saw the potential, uh, sold the benefits to my boss, um, but we didn't have necessary budgets at that time for a full virtualization piece. But at the time we were also speaking to a local DR and virtualization company about um, initially protecting our physical servers with um, double take. Um, and the idea was to actually replicate uh, data from protected physical servers to um, a dedicated DL380, which had ESXi installed on it with lots of SAS storage. So we called this a local recovery appliance. And this basically meant we could uh, get a same instance of a physical machine up as a VM within a few minutes. Um, so that gave us a lot of confidence. And I managed to do quite a few major things for me at that time using uh, uh, doing like an AD cross forest domain migration and the other idea of using the DL380 of the target was um, to actually put left hand VSA onto it and actually replicate the physical uh, software onto it which meant we could actually snapshot from the actual left hand to another left hand offsite so that's kind of how it started mm. um, and then quite quickly, this local recovery appliance soon had lots of production VMs on it. Wow. Um, so it was made this decision then to actually go out and buy another two DL380s with some more local SAS disks, with some more VSAs running on them, and a vCenter license to boot. And all of a sudden, we had Network Ray 10 across multiple hosts using local storage. And that's without the need to buy a SAN. And that's pretty much where we are now. I think what's interesting about that is if you looked at the the left hand uh, before the HP acquisition, of course, um, what it was was a HP box. If you took the bezel off that said left hand yeah. there, on the back of that, there was a, a HP uh, server with the local storage. So why not go physical? What was the benefit of having a virtual appliance sat on um, HP hardware using HP disks? Why not? 
go native, so to speak. <laughs> I don't mean, you know, get naked and run around with the, you know, in Africa, but I mean, go native, go native hardware. What, what did the virtual appliance offer? Um, just flexibility, just because you could run it on pretty much any bit of tin, really, mm. that you could get, you know, ESXi on. So I guess, I mean, if you had not been a HP shop and you'd been a Dell environment or even IBM, that VSA mm. would have worked. Whereas I think at the time, Left Hand had a deal, obviously, with HP and they changed the bezel and off it went out the door. Um, yeah. So, I mean, if you if you didn't have a relationship with HP or you wanted to have a bit more flexibility, were you were you not worried about the performance? I guess you obviously burnt it in and tested it, but a lot of people would say, oh, virtual appliance, oh, what about the performance? What about the IOPS? It's got to go through a hypervisor, yada, yada. Uh, were you not worried about the IOPS? Um, to be honest, no, because we'd been running it as a test case with some VMs on it, and it's just it was actually running much faster anyway than all the physical tin. So really, it just came came quite naturally. Really, it's just well, there's not too much latency. Um, it, it just seems to work for at this stage. Maybe in you know next year we might have to look at something else, but. I tell you what's just funny. Works. What's funny about that is I've heard the same thing said about virtual machines that people, early adopters of virtualization, oh, we've actually found the virtual machine is faster than some of our physical servers. And that's not because the VM is so well written. It's because their old servers are really old and they did just exactly, a yeah. new hardware purchase for yeah. these yeah. latest servers, which once they've got VMs are running on them, the actual CPU uh, cycles per second or whatever is actually better yeah. than their old kit, which I always thought was quite ironic because there was always that assumption back in 2004, 2005 that VMs would be less performant than any physical box. So to have customers going, actually our VMs are quicker than our old physical servers, it was like, yes, yes. Because in terms of application owners being skeptical, it's like get a VM and your performance will improve, not degrade. I mean. You can't really sell anything better than that than you actually say by improving, introducing the software performance will be better. But the real source of that performance improvement wasn't the virtualization layer, it was the new kit they bought. But, you know, if they think it's faster because it's VMware there, well, we won't upset that kind of perception of what's going on, you know. So I, I must admit, I sometimes think about going back to a, a home lab. It's something I'm thinking about even now. And I'm looking at um, these Synology boxes with uh, solid state drives in, mainly because they've got Vi on them. So, you know, when you do a copying, there's no up and downstream from the host. But of course, what I lose if I go to a home lab is my access to my two NetApp boxes and my two Ecologix boxes. But I'm wondering now if I ran a, a, a virtual appliance like NetApp or the VSA left hand. And it's been stored on one of those Synology boxes that's SSD. Where Where is the bottleneck? Probably the bottleneck is going to be the CPU of the Synology box on my network. It's certainly not going to be in the unit with the solid state. So I kind of want my cake and eat it. I want all the enterprise features that you get with an enterprise array, but I want to run that on cheapest chips hardware and not have a co-location fee to pay. But I, I must yeah. The main reason to want to go back to a home lab is me and Carmel are thinking of moving to a more rural location and my, my colo is going to be an hour away drive and I don't know what the bandwidth is going to be like in this rural location. So yeah, yeah, if yeah. the kit's down the corridor in the spare bedroom, I've got the physical access and I don't experience any network latency is what I'm thinking of. But 
probably going off the point. But do you, do you get my point? Have you ever been tempted to use a VSA-like software in your home lab to get enterprise features? Yeah, I mean, it's all in the community, really. I mean, there's great blog posts everywhere. And I'm, um, I'm a really lazy person because I really should perhaps start doing some blogs. But um, everybody else just seems to be so much better. Perhaps I need to uh, just drop that and just get on with it. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, same, same on Twitter as well. Um, people updating. Um, there was, uh, who was it the other day? Um, Simon um, Gallagher. Mm-hmm. I think he's just got rid of his iX2, iX4 yeah. even. Um, so that's kind of old kit now, and he's got got some nice, shiny new stuff. People are doing some really good things. And perhaps, I think he's gone down the route of Nexantia, hasn't he, for his yeah. storage now? I mean, what, out of curiosity, what do you use for your storage in your home lab? I take it you have one. Do you use the VSA? They're, yeah, they're, they're just, um, they're just started this at the minute. Um, I'm in the stage of getting some money down and, and actually making it a little bit more of a, a pimping machine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm kind of holding off because um, HP have just brought out their new microservers, the Gen 8 ones. Yeah. which officially now support 16 gig. They used to only support 8 gig, but if you put in the special Kingston memory that Sam Seagrave sourced, you can yeah, yeah. get 16 gig. For me, the turning point is if I could get a box like that, uh, a microserver, on 32 gig, it would have more memory than most of my servers in the colo. And it's like $200, odd dollars $300 plus the memory. Yeah, yeah, they're really nice. Yeah, I've got a couple. Well, I, I, I always work on the calculation that if I leave the colo, the home lab will pay for itself in unpaid colo fees. So within like six months, what I would have... I want to use a swear word. What I would have wasted paying co-location fees, I've recouped on having a home lab. And then it ends up being a nil cost because, well, if I hadn't had this, I would have been paying the 850 odd quid a month I pay for a colo fees. But the trouble I always find with leaving the colo is when a new version of SRM comes along, what do I do for replication? Um, I think things are a little bit better now. NetApp have got their, a VSA out and EMC have had a version of the VNX out for a while. Cost yeah. us no fiber channel to the VM for any fiber channel replication. But I, maybe we get into the stage where I don't really care whether it's iSCSI or whether it's fiber channel or whether it's Dell, or whether it, as long as it just replicates. Once I'm into SRM, how that replication takes place, well, you know, you don't really see it. It's just there at the end of the day. So maybe I shouldn't get so uppity. I guess it's because previous editions of that book had how to set up replication with its left hand, how to set up replication with NetApp. How, and of course, it always changes new arrays and new software front ends. So I want to kind of keep that going. Anyway, I'm banging on about my own issues. <laughs> so uh, we've got two other topics to sort of talk about before we uh, wrap up. Um, and I'm going to shut up and let you have the floor. It's my main problem. I don't let my chinwaggy speak. Um, virtual VMUGs and recording of VMUGs and live streaming of VMUGs. Are they a good idea? Should they be done? What's the advantages and disadvantages of doing it? Have you got some opinions on that? Yeah, I mean, everyone's got their own opinion. Um, for me personally, I've been attending VMUGs and other technology user groups um, for seven year, several years now. And um, firstly, I can't highly recommend them enough for people to go to one. If they've not gone to one, they really should do. I always speak to at least one person again afterwards. Uh, so it's like a new, a new friend, if you like, uh, someone to either confide in, talk about stuff and that kind of thing. 
Um, for me, it's really difficult uh, where I work because I haven't got anybody else to bounce ideas off. I'm in a small team. Um, so after reading blogs, user groups, definitely the next best thing to get in answers. And uh, I'm fortunate enough to actually be on the committee for the Leeds virtual machine user group. And the hardest part is actually getting people there. So there's different ways to actually get people there and raise awareness. But what I'd like to try and do is perhaps do record a couple of sessions next time and have a little snippet or a show reel. Um, I would put it on, you know, YouTube this on is the what website. You're missing type thing. Well, yeah, just kind of, you know, that there's people are. I don't know. It's whether it's in the IT industry, you know. They're not they're not that chatty, really. You know, you're an exception to that rule. <laughs> That's a polite way of saying that. <laughs> um, but yeah, virtual, you know, virtual appearances as well. I definitely think it's a worth a crack at. Um, but you're going to be reliant on a few technical cogs, which people kind of stay clear of um, so reliable thought, internet. Have you thought about how you might record? I mean, if you're recording them to be uploaded later, you don't need reliable internet. You do if you're streaming, of course, and that costs yeah. money at a venue. But if you thought about how you might capture a presenter's session, how you might go about yeah. doing it? Yeah, I give quite a bit of thought to this recently. Um, so generally, the, the sessions have slides. So that's kind of like an easy one you can record with WebEx. It's a nice inbuilt feature for that sort of thing. Um, but before I started actually in IT, my roots are in sound recording and oh. microphone techniques. So, so for me, hence the microphone. So for me, it's uh, really important that the either the virtual attendees or the virtual presenter can all hear each other. And I think the video in of the actual room is less important. Um, but I've compiled a bit of a kit list. I've got bits to show people for them to have a little uh, think about. So. Um, first thing you're going to have is your microphone and it's either going to be the presenter that you can actually pick up or the attendees. So you've got your typical lapel radio mic, nice mm -hmm. and easy. For your attendees, you're just going to have a standard kind of dynamic. It can be with wire or without a wire. I mean, how um, expensive is this sort of kit now? Well, you know, you can you can have a borrow off friends if you've if you've got them. Uh, perhaps <laughs> someone at work's got them, or it's it's actually better to buy rather than to rent because the rental companies will charge you an arm and leg. Um, I think after maybe three three events, it probably pays for itself. Mm. Um, so after you've got your audio from the microphone, you then want to do a preamp on it. So that's either going to be a mixing desk, so it can be a small mixing desk such as that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's a Soundcraft mixing desk, and that's actually got four microphone inputs. So that gives you a little bit of flexibility as to what you want to plug into it. If you didn't have a mixing desk, you could have a... Um, this is a Marantz recorder. It's got two channels or stereo input. Mm -hmm. So maybe perhaps when you're doing your next chinwags on the road, you could potentially use one of those. <laughs> I'm much more lo-fi than that. I did look at lapel mics for doing chinwags at VMworld. Um, but in the end, I went cable because once you've got lapel mics, you've got batteries. Once you've got batteries, you've got to keep them charged. With, um, yep. with the kind of cheap and cheerful wide one, they've got like a little like hearing aid battery that you screw into them. And you can buy those from Walmart or any like kind of shop. And you just carry a couple in your kit bag. 
the, yeah, the yeah. hardest thing is remember to turn the damn things on when you off when you're done with them because you yeah, switch yeah. them on for recording then you get distracted by the afternoon they can be as flat as a pancake and you don't yeah, even yeah. realize you know that they've... Yeah. i have recorded a couple of uh, mini wags at vm world where they've mainly been <laughs> they haven't switched on the mics yeah <laughs> but fortunately they're only 10 minutes long so if you get like oh screwed up you just junk the video mm. and go on to the next guest you know so you really need someone that's actually going to monitor the sound levels, I think is what we're getting out of that as well. Mm -hmm. So whatever's coming into this little desk, someone needs to be monitoring it. Um, the actual output of the desk is going to be at line level. And so most laptops don't have line inputs. Um, so you're going to need a little sound card. Now this is a little Behringer USB sound card, which has also got a nice little headphone monitor on it. Mm -hmm. So that can be recording your sound at the same time. Mm -hmm. So you can have a beam that across the world, or you can just do it local. Um, there's other things you can have as well. Um, additionally, uh, nice to have, uh, you can have a, a shotgun microphone. Um, <laughs> yeah, don't load with them with bullets or anything like that. You sometimes get those shotgun mounted microphones on camcorders, don't you? Like, yeah, sort of like a long tube that sort of clips on top. I, I, I looked at the camcorder route for a while for going to VMworld and recording sessions at VMworld, which is naughty. But I had a go at trying to do it. Even took a tripod with me, set up the tripod, yeah, yeah. pointed at the presenters, and like nobody came up from VMworld and go, you know, no recordings, no recordings. The trouble I found was it was very difficult to find uh, a camcorder with good battery life that actually would take a decent mic input. So many yeah. of the camcorders have the inbuilt mics, which is fine if you're recording friends at yeah. close quarters, but if you're recording at a distance, you really need yeah. some something that's directional, and then then you're talking camcorders, which are like a grand and a half. Mega books. Yeah. It's it's not going to happen um, for an hour budget. So that's why you really want a separate audio device that you can record it. And then as long as you've got like a, a have someone clapping, that's like your clapperboard. You mm. can actually match up the video and the audio afterwards. So you get rid of the dirty audio and put in the clean audio. Two thoughts I had about this. One idea I had was why not just use Camtasia or screen flow on the actual laptop that you're beaming from yeah yeah that's lapel good idea. mics and then you hit record and the feed from the lapel mic goes to the camtasia and you end up with a video of that presentation i noticed uh, in the manchester user group they actually have an av system you know with the two you know those kind of things that you'd see in a in a pub or a bar yeah, yeah. Some, like a pa system and the mixing yeah. desk is already there well all they would have to do is you know, um, put a screen recorder on and they're, and they're there, but not everybody has that. I guess yeah. there's another side of this, which is the worry about recording VMUGs is if everybody knows it's going to be recorded or you can watch live from a web page, does that mean they stop going? Do you cannibalize yeah. your own attendees? What do you think yeah. of that suggestion? Um, I don't think it will. Um, I think people go because they actually want to speak to people. And meet um, people. I meet people and get answers to problems. You're not going to get that from watching a, a video. Mm. It's the video is really going to in, maybe help to inspire you to go and have a look at something or try and find out about something. Perhaps give you a quick answer, but really the, the value is really having that in-depth conversation with someone, especially when it's something new. Mm. Maybe the power of this is in the opposite direction, rather than offering this facility to members, you offer the facility to speakers. I've presented twice in Manitoba, Canada, but I've never been to Manitoba in my life. 
and it's just being done through the power of WebEx. Um, when I do these events in the US, which I don't do as many as I used to, obviously there's a traveling time. Uh, it takes at least a day to get to the event, a day to do the event and a day to get back. It's three days to potentially speak for 45 minutes, maybe twice if you have two sessions. And yes, there's the interaction with people in the gaps in between, but you know, sometimes you know you don't meet that many people, although people don't come up to you after a session. But uh, I think maybe for VMUGs to get the rock stars, it's quite difficult to get Duncan Epping or Alan Renouf to come to Europe or whatever, or come to the US. But if the time zones are done right, you could potentially, and it's 45 minutes on a WebEx is nothing to me, but three days to get to an event and back, it's like, mm, my boss will sign off on me to do one of those trips a month, but not two, three, four, five. But I could be potentially speaking out loads of VMUGs across the US and in Europe, so long yeah, as yeah. we did it virtually rather than me having to have a physical presence. But is there something lost once you're on a webcam and it's just a PowerPoint and not you in the audience is the question I ask. Yeah, well, it, it does. Um, but, you know, if that's just one in the day and there's lots of different sessions, mm. I think that's fine. As long as it's not overkill. And people should just have a go at the end of the day. Anyway, what they had set up, I forget how they actually did the logistics. They actually had two laptops. One um, connected to the Beamer to the projector so they can see it. And then another laptop pointed at the audience. So mm. I could see my audience and I could wave at them and I could see them waving back in Manitoba, which was kind of funny. The last one I did was was, was, was David Davis. Uh, so you had three different time zones. We all agreed to meet at a certain point and then we had, I had a discussion with David and there was questions from the floor. The only issue I had with the first one was with lag. So I was hitting the space bar in the UK to protect the pre, um, pre, um, to progress the presentation, and it would change instantaneously on my screen. But there was at least a three or four minute lag before that keystroke arrived in Manitoba. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I needed I needed those reverse laptops so I could go I could think that I'm going to move on to the next slide hit the space bar, wait for it to change in Canada, and then say, and smoothly move on to the next point. Without being able to see the Beamer in Manitoba, I would have been completely out of sync with what I was saying and the PowerPoint slides, which I wonder how often that happens just with WebEx generally, unless you upload the PowerPoint, preload it into the WebEx environment, which I think is meant to be a bit quicker. Um, if it's really sharing my screen, sharing my desktop, you're at the mercies of round trips and latencies at that point. But I think you just have to keep it simple uh, if you are going to have a starting point at it. Mm. You look like you've got a lot of equipment, and I think that's what some people might be a bit, you know, lapels, wireless mics, mixing desks. Like I know you're a sound engineer, so you're like, yeah, let's plug it all in and make it work. But I was looking at this thinking, how can we do it as simply as cheaply as budget as possible yeah um, but i think you might be right there's something there is something in the we have user groups but you can't attend virtually but they're about virtualization yeah. and i've often said that about vm world that there should be more online presence during vm world of sessions for people who can't attend and sometimes the answer that's come back when i was an independent is if we opened up vm world to be an open thing that anybody could attend online would people still then come to the event? But uh, my rejoinder, like yours, was it isn't just about 
seen some sessions it's about the people in the meet in the connections you make speaking of which you're into virtualization and you work at a, a law firm do you know Stu McHugh at all I do indeed yeah hey. yeah I was yeah. going to say if you didn't yeah. I would hook you up because there's another virtualization yeah. dude in the UK who works at a law firm so do you guys chat to each other frequently or um it's it's been the odd the odd conversation uh, over the email to be honest uh i do listen to the podcast as well the uh, b news uh so uh yeah there must be a way of doing that peer i know we have all these sigs and stuff like that in the vmugs special interest groups but i don't know how many people actually sign up for them and because they're not what you want to do is identify you, but somewhere else. <laughs> you know. Yeah, this. I mean, for me, there's actually a lot of law firms where, well, where I'm based at the minute, and oh, right, we okay. all tend to know each other. Yeah, um, I guess in the UK you do get. Well, I guess anywhere in the in the world you get legal quarters, don't you? Which are often near the yeah. courts, and I guess the yeah. bars and everything around there is full of. IT people going, oh no, I can't believe this has just happened. You know, so I guess there is a community there already that's local. Anyway, I we've think all got the same problems. Yeah, I guess we need to wrap this up. We've got one more last question to do, but we'll try and do it in like two minutes, which is selling to the business. Do we have to, as technical people, learn how to sell what we do? Do we need to learn to sell in order to get a product signed off and get a purchase order, or is it about selling a concept? And if we're not naturally salespeople, how do we learn to be salesperson? And this is your idea about selling to the business but i'm just kind of couching it in a couple of terms yeah so, so the the angle i'm coming from is that it's getting harder and harder every year to get approval for new it related purchases um especially when um it's not a nice shiny piece of hardware to show after you you've bought something like a software license for instance so yeah, it's coming around to that software defined data center if you want mm -hmm. um and I think the mindset perhaps needs to change um, from calling it an IT purchase to calling it a business purchase. Um, we tend to get more, a bit more traction on that. Um, most of the people probably listening now are, are techies or they have been techies and they mm -hmm. fix stuff. So techies don't tend to have soft skills or language uh, to talk to the stakeholders of the company to you know, go out and buy the next big thing. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think it's like really important for everyone to develop alongside learning about latest and greatest tech, um, how to actually talk to the business. Now, I probably count myself quite lucky at the minute because um, all of a sudden the firm announcing the benefit of knowledgeable Duncan. Um, they see me as this guy that's won this $20,000 check off VMware and um, they're using me to actually sell professional services now. So. I would uh, consider myself as a, a trainee salesperson, if you like, uh, almost slightly uh, like a, a di diversifying uh, to myself as a walking, talking Swiss Army knife, if you want. So is that IT services to other legal firms that they're wanting to do that? I, some of our um, seminars are based on IT and innovation. And we, we did one recently on the Raspberry Pi um, and I showed how we could use the Raspberry Pi as a thin client, mm. connect up, up to View, connect up to ZenApp. Um, all of a sudden, you don't actually need to go out and buy a PC or a thin client. You could just buy a Raspberry Pi for £40. Um, mm. 
and that's just kind of got people thinking and it's like it's almost like a different angle that they've not seen before well, this is a bit different these guys seem to know what they're talking about so that's how i'm kind of getting used at the minute uh, as a as a sales weapon if you like out of curiosity not to go off the point a little bit but the raspberry pi as a, a view climb what os do you put on it um so well, it's like a linux um deployment you just you download it off it's like a raspberry pi forum site um it just flashes an sd card and um the particular build I, i've got has actually got a v workspace um build on there as well and an rdp client so it pretty much covers everything off to be honest and mm. I, I mean i must admit i've only really used the windows client the html5 client uh and uh mac client i I, I assumed we have a, a Linux client, but I have no idea what it's what it's like. Was that small enough, relatively, to get it onto that Linux distribution, or was it um, kind of pre-built? It's it's pre-built. Um, I've not got time for building that sort of thing, to be honest. <laughs> Nobody has. There's lots of uh, there's lots of interesting people out there like doing that, which is mm. great. Um, well, I guess Simon Long, I noticed Simon Long started to do some stuff on, on Raspberry Pi, and I knew why he'd be looking at that for the yeah, same reason yeah. that you've talked about. I mean, I've not purchased one. I got hold of one Yeah, I just haven't got around to doing it. I might do uh, at some yeah. stage, but it's just when not. You can, you can put other it. things on there as well. There's um, there's one for AirPlay. So you, you can just, you, know, you boot it up with like a Xbox Media Center on there. Um, turn on AirPlay mode. You can whack it in a meeting room and all of a sudden you've got AirPlay without having to buy you know, your Apple TV for 100 quid. What was so, the, um, the um, connections on the Raspberry Pi? Is that HDMI or is that SVGA? Yeah, it's HDMI. Right, okay. Just thinking about that. Anyway, okay. So uh, what I think is interesting out of all those things is that you decided that we should talk about business purchase rather than IT purchase. And yeah. I am, the reason I'm into that is as a former student of literature and the fine arts, I'm interested in the language that we use to talk about stuff and how if we change our language, although the content of what we're saying is the same, by using different words, the organization reacts differently to that. And the one I came up with is, uh, recently is we should stop talking about DR because DR is associated with a negative event, disaster, yeah. which you hope never happens. And it's associated with expensive insurance policy, which you never get to claim on. And I've been saying for a while, maybe we need to drop this term at all and talk about site availability is the term that we need. Because uh, this stretch clustering stuff has taken off as, you know, people think it's really sexy. It's quite expensive and technologically challenging. But somehow site availability and active, active sites is what people want to talk about. They don't want to talk about DR and business continuity. That's just seen as a money pit. But we are yeah. actually talking about the same thing, redundancy and resiliency that protects you from a site failure. But maybe we just need to use different words. So I wonder what is it about the word business purchase that somehow a management layer responds to in a way that if you say IT purchase, they just go, no, we're not having any of that. It's historical, isn't it? IT has always been this kind of... Uh, it's, yeah, yeah. Um, it's getting people to think differently about it now. and it, Things are definitely changing. Um, if you can actually show people things working or how they can save some money, um, physically put it in front of them and show them, then 
that tends to go a lot better than writing a, a big report and sending that off that people are probably not going to read. Mm. I mean, I think we've tried it in the past with total cost of ownership and return on investment studies to show, yeah, there's this monumental build that you'll have to pay to acquire, but the, over a three or four year period, it all pays back. But the trouble with those REO and uh, TCO studies is that there isn't a software vendor on the planet that doesn't have one that demonstrates their software delivers that. The, a year ago, I heard a software vendor say that their software has a high TCO. And I thought, how funny is that, that the term TCO has become so abused in our industry that he's actually got it the wrong way around. What you want is a low total cost of ownership, not a high <laughs> one. But it was like, oh, we've got a high TCO. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> You're getting this the wrong way around, you know. But it just goes to show how when a term like that becomes so abused and misused, it then doesn't have any meaning anymore. And I, yeah, I like yeah. the idea of using new words because it, it requires people to think about the thing in a different way. And maybe business purchase in three years' time will be as redundant, and you'll have to think of a new word, buzzword, to engage management. Yeah, I mean, it happens all the time, doesn't it? And cloud is obviously not very... Hmm. Well, it's become yeah. an abused, misused, reused, overused word that I think it's lost its currency or lost yeah. some of its currency. It's no surprise that we've had to coin this thing called the software defined something. Yeah, yeah. Who's to say in three or four years' time when everybody's got software defined, you know, you know, software defined cups, software defined everything, then we'll have to find a new word to talk about this to the to business people. But I think yeah. what's interesting is admitting to ourselves that whether you like it or not, if you're in a technical position, doing sales and being able to speak to the business in a way that it understands rather than in technical terms is part of, part of doing work nowadays, whether you like it or not. Yeah, I don't think people get that at this stage. I'm certainly learning the ropes uh, as we speak, if you like. Sure. Well, anyway, um, thank you very much for your uh, time. I, I will link to the, the video of... of uh, Duncan talking about his SMB stuff. Or don't, don't look at the eyebrows too much. I'm, I'm kind <laughs> of quite expressive. <laughs> I'll, send, I'll send some hits over to that little website called vmware.com, whoever they are, you know, from the great <laughs> mikelaverick.com joke, joke, joke. But thank you very much for being on the Chimwag. It's been a, a pleasure. Thanks.